Thank you. I, I don't have a big stick, and I'm not even sure that I have much to say. Maybe I can compress it by leaving out all definite and indefinite articles in, in the next eight minutes. Uh, let me tell you a bit about uh, who I am and, uh, and what I do, because I think that one of the hardest things for people who are starting out in their careers to realize is what it actually is to live a particular kind of life. What does one do every day? I took my undergraduate training in maths and physics in Montreal, where I grew up, then I went to medical school. After that, I spent two or three years in neurology, and finally I ended up in research, and I've been doing that ever since. I study the brain, uh, and I spend about 80% of my time doing research. The other 20% is teaching, teaching medical students. The time I spend in research is broken down roughly as follows. The, the kinds of things that have to be done every day, like answering letters and that sort of stuff, saying good morning to everybody, takes about 20% of one's time. Uh, you can't get around it. And then uh, most days I find myself writing, talking to the person I work in partnership with about tomorrow's experiments or yesterday's, uh, and uh, doing tidying up the lab and doing all sorts of drudgery, but things that really are in a way fun, machining things, making gadgets, uh, writing. And then two days a week we do experiments, one big one and one little one. The little one, these things are measured by when one gets home. The big experiment, one gets home around 4 or 5 a.m. The little one, maybe 1 or 2 a.m. So, and during that time, what we do is to take anesthetized animals, drill a small, small hole in their skull, put tiny wires into the brain, and try and figure out how it works. The part of the brain that we work on is the part that has to do with vision. You have to work on some part of the brain. It isn't necessarily the most interesting part, but at least you can get a handhold into it. And it's turned out over the last 20 years that, and I think this was known by a lot of other avenues, that the brain is a magnificently complicated but magnificently ordered structure, and it's something that actually can be understood in principle. The parts that have been looked at intensively are getting to be rather well understood. That still leaves the other 95%, much of which isn't known at all. It's absolute terra incognita. The frontal lobes, we have hardly the slightest idea what what they do, to say nothing of how they do it. The visual cortex where I work, we have a pretty good idea what it does and how it does it. There's still a lot to learn, but the rate of progress in this field is terrific. The, the, the nice thing about neurobiology, from my point of view, is that first of all, you can work in a small group. You don't have to have 83 authors on a paper like you do in a lot of modern physics. You can work in partnership with one other person, or two or three. You can work all by yourself if you want, and that has, has fantastic advantages. Uh, because there's an immediacy of contact with your own research and an identification with it. The other big advantage in, in neurobiology at the moment is that there's no dichotomy between theory and experiment. The experimentalists are, by and large, the theorists, so no one has to tell us or suggest to us what experiments we should do or tell us what they mean afterwards. And that's really a marvelous state for the field to be in. It's cheap. Compared to defense, compared to space, it costs only a tiny amount. So it's rather easy to get money, although one has to waste a certain amount of time scouting around 
for for money. It's it's a really nice field to be in. It also has the advantage that given two or three hours, you can explain to anybody what it is you're doing and exactly what it means and give them a pretty good idea what's going on in the field. That's not the case in particle physics, for example. Well, these are advantages. Uh, and nice things about the brain. The other thing is, of course, it's a subject of cosmic proportions, just as astronomy is. There are a lot of reasons for wanting to do it. There's the obvious one, you can maybe cure diseases or help contribute to that. And actually that happened to us quite by accident. We found a way to prevent the kind of blindness that you get if you're born cross-eyed. Uh, schizophrenia, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, all these things are not understood now and there's a good chance they will be and neurobiologists can contribute to that. The second thing is that w we need to understand our own brains and I think it's the same thing, our own minds very badly. We un need to understand, for instance, that people have emotions and how they work, otherwise uh, it's, it's senseless to try to get along with other people if we look at, on them as rational automata. You have to remember that not all the people in the Kremlin are rational and take cognizance of all the ifs and ands. There are bound to be a few crazy people anywhere. And the more we understand about the brain, the better we can deal with things like that. Education, uh, all sorts of things can be handled better if one understands the brain. And finally, there's probably the real reason why anyone does science, and that is absolutely simply curiosity. The same reason that an astronomer studies galaxies is one of the basic reasons for our studying the brain. And let me end up by saying one thing that may not be quite as obvious because to, to everyone unless one thinks about it, one gets used in a way to downgrading our own country. And that's a good thing in a way. Criticism is nice and we're free to criticize, which is exceptional here, as you've already heard this morning. But the, the United States for doing science has, and for particularly the kind that we do, has some fantastic advantages. One is the, the spirit of freedom, the spirit of anyone's being able to ask questions freely, not worrying if the question seems dumb. That sort of thing exists in the USA. It doesn't exist in Europe. You give a seminar there to students and no one asks any questions as a rule because they're afraid. They're afraid of being batted down. That's not true here and that's a terrific thing. Uh, a second thing is that the university system in this country is unbelievably great and one, one just has to see how things are in Germany and France and Japan and a number of other countries to realize what a wonderful system we have. The possibility of going to university, doing research, if you're on the faculty there, teaching just about as much as you want, which can be a lot or very little. These things really don't exist in, in uh, other countries, particularly the close relationships you can have with students and the, the fact that they can, can come and tell you when you've done something dumb or said something stupid. They don't hesitate for a minute and that kind of feedback is great to have. The third thing, of course, is that the, the system of, of providing money for research is just terrific. Uh, a young person, not necessarily a professor even, can write a grant practically after he gets his PhD, write a grant request and have pretty good hope of having it funded. You don't have to be well known, you just have to say something sensible. There are ups and downs in all of this and this is slightly a down period in, in, in funding of science as we all know, but then there are swings. And I actually, I think that's just about all I have to say. It's not very cosmic, but that's it.
Uh, yes. Uh, can any of your vision recognition research be applied to any technological fields such as robotics? Sure. I think that not, not only ro robots, but computers in general. Uh, the, the computer people are beginning to uh, look to how the brain is done because that, in a sense, is probably the most magnificent computer of all. There are things that the brain can tell us about how computers work, as you heard from Marvin Minsky yesterday. The idea of having thousands of comp small computers that are special purpose in parallel comes from the brain. That's where the inspiration comes from. It's a two-way street. Neurophysiologists use computers as tools, of course, but the, the design of those and of robots, one has a lot to learn from neurobiology, and that's being done all the time. It would be senseless not to do that, because it, this is an invention that's taken millions and millions of years. We might as well take advantage of that. Um, when you were speaking about uh, implanting the electrodes to the skull, um, was that research uh, in mapping the, the map that's in the visual cortex of the retina, and if so, could you give us a little idea of uh, how it's organized? I can. I, I can try in a few seconds. Uh, the, the, the piece of brain that we work on is, is about two millimeters thick, and it's about the size of a calling card, a few inches by a few inches. It's a very strange plate-like structure containing 100,000 cells under every square millimeter. That consists of a map of the visual world. So you take any region of, you look out into space, take any region of your visual world, anything that happens there will send signals to a certain part of that, that region. But it's more than just a map. If you look at the cells themselves, they're doing all kinds of fantastically specialized things with the information coming from that part of the visual world. And just as one example, if you shine a line in that part of the visual field, uh, there will be cells that will respond to the line provided the line's in a certain orientation. If you change the tilt of the line to a different tilt, those cells stop firing and a new set will take on. And as you push an electrode through the cortex, you, you go from one orientation to the next right around the clock before you move off to a new part of the visual field. About five or six others, color, stereopsis, all of these things seem to be handled in this one region of the brain. This isn't nearly enough to explain perception to us, but it gets one a certain distance along that way. Do you think that um, human reaction, I mean actions, such as preference for color or thought or emotion, will turn out to be um, chemical or biological reactions? In some sense, yes. Of course, everything has to be chemistry. The, the bricks that go to build a, a, a cathedral are chemistry, but they aren't enough to explain the, the cathedral. So it's not, it can't just be the chemistry of the cells, although that's terribly important. It has to partly be the, the way the cells are strung together, the way they're hooked up. Uh, knowing about con condensers and resistors isn't enough to explain a television set. You have to know what the network is also. But the, the, the preferences for color and emotions and things like that must, in the end, in my opinion, depend on how these things are hooked up. But how they're hooked up itself, we know, can change with, with the past history of the animal, what its upbringing is, what its training is. Those things are what change the connections. So the way your mind is built up, the, your outlook, your attitudes, those things must have to do with, with how nerves are connected. That may seem... Uh, a very materialistic way of looking at it. But after all, if you have millions and millions of cells, you can do quite a lot with them. And evidently, quite a lot is done. 
Uh, my question deals with medicine in more of a general sense than the uh, previous questions. In Memphis, Tennessee, um, we're big with liver transplants there. And, you know, with all the, the breakthroughs that are coming through now, it seems, you know, it's great that people are, you know, having a chance to have new lives again, so to speak. But it also seems to me that money is a big factor. If you can't afford it, you, you can't live, you know, and it seems like people who are going to live are the ones who are going to have the big bucks and they can say, well, I want the liver transplant, as opposed to someone who is very sick, you know, or, you know, even equally sick and just can't afford it. And I would like to, you know, get your opinion on this. Yes, well, you've really put it better than I can. Uh, we know that those problems exist, and we simply, by we I mean everybody, simply doesn't know what to do about them. You, you, the kinds of money that have to be put into a patient that has a liver, uh, a kidney transplant and is dialyzed, for example, is just absolutely enormous, and you could obviously do more with that money in directions of nutrition and things like that. Who's to make these decisions? Is a, is a terribly difficult question. It's like keeping a person with a stroke alive for months and months even though they're unconscious. All these things are related. They're all fuzzy, they're shades of gray, and you can't make hard and fast rules. And I don't know the answer. But I sure agree that there's, a, there's an important and, di and difficult question. For sure, we can make a little bit of money go a long way in prevention of a lot of these things, and that's where probably the stress should be in research, to do things that will prevent these, these things from happening in the first place, rather than solving them once, trying to solve them once it's too late. How did you come about discovering the cure for blindness resulting from cross-eyedness, and are we close to discovering any more cures of that nature? Actually, it, it it's, would be unfair to call it a cure and, and presumptuous. The, the, the thing is the, the prevention. What we found was that if we closed one eye of a, of a newborn cat or a monkey and let it go uh, for several months and then tested the brain, we found that, the, that there was a a disruption of connections in the brain, not in the eye, as a result of simply closing the lids of the eye. The eye still, uh, the eye still works if you open the lids, but it's the connections in the brain that go sour somehow. And the same thing happens if you cut an eye muscle and make the animal cross-eyed. That doesn't hurt the animal particularly, but what you find is that the blindness may occur in one eye when you do that, and you certainly get changes in the cortex. And that hadn't been realized before, so now people know that if you're born cross-eyed, if you have a cross-eyed child, it should be repaired surgically as soon as possible. And if it's repaired early in life, then you can prevent the blindness from occurring. So it was just as simple as that. One thing I should put in a plug for is that for this kind of work and for any other kind of medical research that you can imagine, to use animals is an absolute necessity. It's just nonsense to think that in our st present stage of knowledge we can do everything in test tubes and with computers. It simply isn't true. It's not nice to have to use animals. They don't have any choice in the matter, and one realizes there is an ethical question. But everybody I know uses anesthetics and doesn't hurt the animals, but they have to be used, and we can't, shouldn't, or should try to avoid thinking in a soft way about these things. It's sort of a matter of indifference whether an animal's put to sleep at a dog pound or it's put to sleep and then an experiment is done and then it's done away with by an investigator. The animal has no way of knowing the difference. We, we, one shouldn't listen too easily to the propaganda about these things without listening to the other side. Otherwise, a lot of harm can be done to medical research. You just have to look at the advances that have been made in the last 20 years 
as a medical student, when I got on a streetcar in Montreal and someone next to me coughed, I would have a conniption fit because I knew my chances of ending up in a TB sand for a year were greatly heightened by that. No one has to worry about that nowadays. Polio, you, everybody knows the things that medicine has done, and one only has to think of what it can do, things like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and all of those things. But it's going to require research, and the research has to be done on animals because we're dealing with uh, diseases that involve animals, not only ourselves, but other animals. Dr. David Hubel, thank you very much.